Labrea. Welcome back to another episode of the Labrea Purveya. My name is Pete Phillips. I am your Labrea Purveyor. This week, we're going to talk about the episode The Fog. Fog is, of course, something that's hard to see through, hard to kind of know what's coming. And the episode did bring a few significant surprises towards the end. Things that you may have not seen coming. I know I didn't. We'll also spotlight Aldridge this episode, ask some burning questions while we make some theories, and we'll also check out what's happening in the media related to La Brea. But, as is our practice, we will start this episode with a little bit of information about Episode 4, The Fog. Episode Recap As a small preview... I wanted to encourage you to remember how Lucas, Scott, and Veronica stole all the food from the fort folks. How Scott encouraged the plan so that he could get Silas's key card. Well, in this episode, the fort folks figure out what happened. The episode opens on Eve hovering over Izzy while she sleeps on the bus. Last season, they called Eve a helicopter mom. But this is the first time that she finally feels like one. She's literally hovering over her daughter. Gavin comes in and he and Eve smile at each other, and Izzy is so excited to ship her own parents getting back together. It occurs to me that I have mentioned shipping a few times, and just in case you're not familiar, shipping is the act of wanting slash supporting two individuals involved in a romantic relationship. Shipping comes from the word relation ship. Basically, it's when you want a fictional character, real life person, or cartoon people hmm, to be together. In a Psychology Today article, they say, Shipping reveals a lot about our society and just how lonely and unloved people often feel. It is this loneliness that fuels the need to experience romance and love, at least vicariously. And to that I say, screw you, Psychology Today guy. <laughs> but speaking of shipping... Lucas is cooking eggs for Veronica, and they're all messing around, and one might venture to say that they're flirting. I don't know if this is an accurate description, but Veronica isn't moping around dying of guilt, so that's nice to see. When Scott comes by, the two are also united in picking on him for his healed ankle and mysterious disappearance. Scott successfully deflects again, and when Ella comes by, Veronica angstily runs off. Think about it, Ella came here for one reason, Veronica, and with Veronica avoiding her so much, plus the living conditions, plus the lack of interest from everyone else, she's basically all alone in 10,000 BC. Oh, come on, that sucks! Kevin, Sam, and Ty are looking for Aldridge because she's the only person with answers about how to get everything back to normal, but a fog is rolling in, making it hard to see anything. Gavin recalls the fog from his childhood. He says that they need to get moving quick because they won't be able to see anything soon. While he's packing for the trip, Scott pulls him aside and tells him about how he is in cahoots with Aldridge and that she wants to see him. She wants to take him to 1988 and get Josh. Eve, though, is eavesdropping. Hey, that's a good one. <laughs> and here's the situation. But Aldridge says she needs to speak to Gavin alone. So no Eve allowed. Gavin manages to talk Eve out of her desire to come along. And it's hard for me to understand that these two can't figure out that both shouldn't have to go to save one kid. I mean, the sinkhole situation actually worked out really great for them. Each got a kid, and each kid got a parent. I mean, who could ask for more? 
okay, yeah, them being all together, but considering the circumstances, I mean, they did pretty well. In 1988, Riley, Josh, and geologist Franklin Marsh are in a basement lab trying to charge Josh's smartphone. See, if they get the phone charged, then they'll be able to see pictures of 10,000 BC, and that will convince everyone that Marsh's theories are true, and they will take him seriously. They won't at all be distracted by the handheld computer that contains the pictures. But Marsh has already been chastised for his theories, so he suggests that Riley, a young, independent woman, go talk to Carolyn Clark, who is an expert in the field and also a young, independent woman. Which is to say that a stranger has more credit with this woman than Franklin Marsh does. Gavin and Scott go off to find Aldrich in the fog, but they hear scary sounds, and they stay put while they try to wait out those scary sounds. Also, Gavin gets Scott to spill the beans. What's in that building that can bring Josh back? Well, apparently there is a room in that building with a portal, and it can connect to the future. You're telling me that they can control time travel? That's what Aldrich says, and I believe her. It's good to see you, Gavin. You and I have a lot to talk about. I was going to tell him about the exiles. I know you just escaped from them. Unfortunately, we have to go back. That's our way into the building. The Lazarus uses the black rock from the caves as a fuel source to power the portal. The exiles are about to send them another shipment. And we hijack it. That's our way in. Once we're inside, we get to the top floor, which is where the portal room is, and we're going to access it with this. Is this about my parents? Silas told me that they're still alive. They are. I've known your father and mother for a very long time. The three of us and Silas, we're part of the team that created Lazarus. While wandering elsewhere, Lucas and Veronica hear some fort folks talking about attacking the clearing because Lucas and company robbed them of their food. Para is not with them, so in my eyes, she's still cool. So they go back to the clearing and they tell Sam. Sam says that they have to fight, so they pool their resources and Eve has a plan. Yes, Sam is a Navy SEAL, but Eve is a mother and a secretary, so she knows how to arrange schedules and attacks. Everything checks out! Following her, they light a big fire and they make stuffed versions of themselves to sit around the fire. The idea is that the fort fighters will go toward the fire, attack, and then be surrounded by the clearing clan. In the meantime, Aldridge is spinning more nonsense once she catches up with Gavin and Scott. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. What?! She says she knows Gavin's parents, and she has worked with them. They are alive, and he can get to them, but they have to move fast. They need to steal a rock shipment from the Exiles to deliver it to the Lazarus building so that they can get in. Para runs into Gavin, Aldridge, and Scott and tells them that rebels from her community are attacking the clearing, and she is going to help stop them with other people from her group. Gavin decides that he has to go protect his family, but Aldridge says there's just no time. I got all the time I want, I got a time machine. So Para has some people with her, as I said, and they're trying to find the fort fighters before they fight. Again, they're rebels who split from the tribe to exact revenge. While gathering materials for the whole plan, Ty experiences some sort of pain and distraction from his brain tumor. Suddenly, he runs into an old friend slash patient named Anthony. I get the impression that something's up with Anthony, and I'm right, so I won't say what it is just yet. Anthony goes, hey, drop all your stuff and help me find my friends. And Ty does, after some consideration. So, Ty is not at the clearing for most of the rest of the episode. And this is important because he left his friends, and he isn't there for Para either. 
With the pending attack, Eve tries to make Izzy stay in the bus and out of harm's way, but Izzy immediately goes into teenager mode. You treat me differently because of my leg. My accident ruined our family. Teenagers. <laughs> they think they know everything. And when pressed on whether she would let Josh fight, Eve gives in. Izzy can fight, but she has to stay close to her mom. When the fort fighters show up, they fall for the plan immediately, and they look like suckers. <laughs> but Para also shows up and confronts her rebels. At that point, wolves also show up, and everyone freaks the f*** out. Luckily, CGI wolves are slow, so everyone can run for cover, but the wolves seem to focus their sights on Gavin, who has come back to fight for Eve and Izzy. Aldridge gets involved too, and she really wallops a wolf. Which is fun to say, you should try it. But then another one attacks her, and she gets injured. Eve also helps Joseph, the leader of the fort fighters, to show that they're not all bad. And just so we're clear, Eve went out of the bus along with Izzy to fight the fort fighters. And then the wolves showed up and everybody freaked out and ran. So Izzy managed to get back in the bus with Ella, Veronica, Lucas, and Sam. But Eve didn't get back to the bus. So she's out fighting wolves now, but she wants to get to Izzy. Ultimately, she has to hide too. So she and Levi end up in a trailer with Joseph, the leader of the fort fighters, but Eve can't stop wanting to get to Izzy. Back in the bus, Sam is doing a fine job protecting Izzy by not letting her go outside. Veronica is having a panic attack, and if you recall from season one, Lily slash Ella knows how to calm her down, so she does. They're bonding. Veronica isn't so cold to her. Lucas is there too, and he seems generally confused and upset by the panic attack. And we also have this weird family triangle thing happening at the same time. Eve... Izzy and Gavin are all separately safe in some sort of transportation vehicle, but each one wants to go out to save the others, which could in turn get them all killed. Aye, 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 aye. Now Aldridge is injured, but she's holding on in a car with Scott and Gavin. But as I said, Gavin wants to get to his family, and it just so happens that the wolves are now biting through the top of the bus, which is kind of the bottom of the bus because the bus is flipped over. Also, wolves are trying to charge the side by way of the window. Basically, they're gonna get in. It's just a matter of time. If only somebody had a plan. According to the National Park Service, the muscular build, powerful jaws, and sharp teeth of dire wolves made them menacing predators. They probably hunted in packs like modern wolves a theory that is supported by the sheer number of dire wolf fossils found at sites like the La Brea Tar Pits in California. Pack hunting, as well as their large size, allowed dire wolves to hunt large prey such as horses and bison. In contrast, the smaller gray wolves would have had to stick to smaller prey. While this worked for a while, this was eventually their downfall. When the dire wolves ran out of large prey, they had to compete with the gray wolves to get smaller prey but they didn't have as much practice as the gray wolves did. Dire wolves may have also scavenged kills from other predators like saber-toothed cats to supplement their diet when prey was scarce. In 1988, some weirdness goes down. Riley reaches out to the person Marsh told her to, Carolyn Clark. She even showed her pictures of 10,000 BC on the phone, but Carolyn Clark is not having any of this. She calls the phone a prop from Hollywood, and the picture's bogus. Her graduate assistant, Maddie, also seems rough and tumble at the start. But 
By the time she parts ways with Riley, she whispers that they should meet together later. Hmm, I'm intrigued. As the wolves get closer and closer to penetrating the bus, Can we come in, please? Veronica accepts forgiveness from Ella, and it's a nice moment to have just before you might be getting eaten by wolves. Gavin and Scott leave Aldridge in the car. Even Levi leave Joseph in the trailer, and they all accidentally meet up and devise one heck of a convenient plan. They are going to strap a piece of fuel rock that somebody just happened to have on them to an arrow, and then Eve is going to shoot that arrow into the fire that they had started, and it's going to explode and scare the wolves away. And that's exactly what happens. It's very deus ex machina. But hey, who's complaining? Deus ex machina, translated to English would be God out of the machine, is a plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. Its function is generally to resolve an otherwise irresolvable plot situation, to surprise the audience, and to bring the tale to a happy ending. So, a little while later, Eve pulls Izzy aside and she tells her that her leg didn't break up the family. Gavin did. I'm joking, although it is true. She explains that the stress of Gavin's visions and drinking, mixed with Levi being so available, resulted in her just falling in love with Levi. Izzy thought that they would be a family again, and Eve tells her that they will always be a family, just not exactly how Izzy envisions them being a family. And remember Anthony and Ty? Well, this guy takes Ty to the middle of nowhere while Ty waxes poetic about how he wants to help everyone in need. Anthony was in need once too, and Ty chose to help him over his wife's request for him to stay at home. Then his marriage proceeded to fall apart. Anthony also just disappears. It turns out he is a hallucination as a result of the brain tumor, so Ty avoided all conflict and survived all danger by not being close to it at all. Para finds, ironically, by helping no one, he stayed safe. Para eventually finds him, and he goes on about regret and choices. He tells Para that he chooses her over everyone from now on. You choo-choo choose me? And they're happy and in love. Back in 1988, Maddie, the graduate assistant, takes Riley and Josh to a weirdly empty apartment where they find Carolyn Clark around a corner. In some ways, she knows everything, but in other ways, she's totally clueless. But then our story splinters even more. She thinks that someone named James sent them, but we find out a bit more before this episode closes. I assume you work for James. I know James is trying to stop my work, but I'm not going to let him. It's too important. Sorry, lady, but we have no idea what you're talking about. Why did you come to 1988? We didn't mean to. That was a mistake. We needed to bring a little boy to an Aurora and get him through safely. He had to get to 88. And then Silas, his grandfather, tried to stop us. What was the boy's name? Isaiah. I I know this is going to sound crazy, but he's actually my dad. Not yet. He will be in the future. Wait, you know who Isaiah is, don't you? He's my son. You're my grandmother. Aldridge dies, but before she dies, she tells Gavin that his mother is coming back. Para and Ty chill by the fire, and they're all smiles and in love. Veronica and Ella are also happy, but Lucas is kind of off to the side all alone. And Scott is left to bury his buddy, Aldridge, which is very dutiful and honorable. But 
Gavin swears to either Sam or Levi, uh, sometimes I lose track of who's who, that they will carry on her plan even though she's dead, setting the stage for another exciting episode, episode 5, The Heist. What just happened? So I gotta wonder, how did the rest of the camp fare against the wolves and that explosion that they caused to distract the wolves? I spend so much time worrying about the rest of the people at the clearing that it keeps me up at night. They have no names or backstories until it's convenient, but really, were the bodies in the wide shot at the end theirs? Did that fire have any collateral damage? That's a very good question. Are Lucas and Veronica going to continue now that Ella and Veronica have a connection? Yes, you can have friends, sisters, and love interests, but... How will this affect the budding romance between our two most unstable clearing members? That's a very good question. I'm not even going to touch the whole smartphone in 1988 thing. But with all these revelations at the end of the episode, did we lose track of the reality that Marsh is trying to stop Clark? Though she seems more concerned about this James character. And Riley and Josh also intend to stop her? And this is weird, right? Because if they do, they're stuck in 1988. And without our time travel rules, who knows what could happen? That's a very good question. Is Aldridge dead? Yeah, right? I mean, Scott is burying her, so she's dead. But will a different Aldridge emerge, like one from a different time? In a way, I hope so, because she won't be as cryptic and mysterious, because she simply just won't know as much as dead Aldridge does. That's a very good question. And if we're moving ahead with Aldridge's plan, will we get to see Virgil again? How's Virgil doing? I hope he's good. That's a very good question. If they're in love now... Where will Para and Ty live moving forward? When she said that they would go back to the camp, I thought for sure that that meant Ty was going to move to Fort Town. But instead, they were cuddling by the fire at the clearing. As his illness progresses, should they live together? And side question, can someone travel to the future and get Ty some miracle cure as soon as possible? That's a very good question. Aldrich, Silas, Carolyn Clark and an unnamed fourth male party are responsible for the whole sinkhole thing. If this is true, will we meet younger versions of these people in 1988? And if we do, will they have different names like Gavin Isaiah and Ella Lilly? I know it wouldn't make sense for them to have different names, but don't tell me that things have to make sense in this show. That's a very good question. To that end as well, will young Silas be as foxy as young actor who plays Silas named Mark Lee? Check him out on IMDb. Very handsome headshot. That's a very good question. Digging deeper. Since she is essentially dead, let's take a look at our old pal, Madam of Mystery, creator of Sinkhole Planes, speaker of circular nonsense, Dr. Rebecca Aldridge. When we meet Aldridge, there was an implication that she was with Homeland Security. She was part of the Mojave sinkhole team who ventured into a sinkhole to see what was there, I guess? She was buddies with Dr. Sophia Nathan. And she had a farm and a seemingly endless personal budget because she had lots of land, a helicopter, a plane that can fly through sinkholes, and horses. She somehow managed to get that whole plane away from the Department of Homeland Security, too and she lost friends in the Mojave Hole. So, how did Aldridge get through the rigorous background check to become a Department of Homeland Security agent? Who knows? By her own admission, she was a scapegoat of that failed mission, but I guess she stayed on good terms with the department? 
At any rate, she ditched Gavin on the plane and left him to deal with the aftermath of the whole flying in an unsanctioned zone or something. Then, when she shows up in 10,000 BC, the first thing she does is kidnap Isaiah. And then she gets stabbed by Silas. And then she admits to Eve that Isaiah is Gavin. She takes Scott to this big building, too, by the end of season one, and she opens up a pond. She uses Scott as a double agent. Like, what is going on with this woman? You don't know if you should love her or hate her, but most of the time you kind of feel like you shouldn't like her at all. Well, I can't say much about the intention, but the name Aldridge comes from the surname Aldrich, which means old ruler or noble ruler. It's also thought that the name comes from Alrwick, which means dwelling or farm among alders. Rebecca can mean to tie or bind. In many ways, she does bind us to the backstory happening surrounding the sinkholes, but more, she did act as an old ruler. In many cases, she is a puppet master, with no one watching her puppet show except her. This makes her hard to like, I have to admit. She's intriguing, but I think that we can all agree that manipulative people don't really rank high on our preferred companions list. Still, Aldridge played a valuable role in the show. Even if she is dead and gone, her influence will weigh heavy on the story moving forward. Although, you know how Isaiah and Lily went back to 1988, just as Gavin and Ella went back to 10,000 BC, and we avoided any paradoxes of having young and old in the same time. Maybe since we lost old Aldridge, we're due for a new Aldridge. The actor who portrayed Dr. Rebecca Aldridge is Ming-Shu Hai. She also appeared in Peter Rabbit in 2018, but what interests me more is her independent projects, the ones that she's written and directed. They sound like really deep, thrilling, and dramatic female-led stories. And while acting pays the bills, I hope we get to see some of those stories play out in the future. In the media reviews. For today, I thought I would do something I've never done before. I joined Reddit. And while I was looking at Reddit users' discussion about La Brea at r slash La Brea TV, if that's how you say it, I don't know what I'm talking about, I found that during the episode of The Fog, user Feeling Just Peachy said, Lucas and Veronica are totally gonna become a couple. And you know I've been rooting for this since the beginning of this season. In response, user I Make Mop said, I hope they decide Veronica is like 25 instead of 15. And this is where I thought, oh no. And then the people's sergeant chimed in and asked, how old is Veronica supposed to be? User Tensuk said, I think the actress is 26, but I got late teen vibes from her character. Not sure. And Ripurina added, I think late teens, question mark. So we're in this situation where I'm thinking to myself, did I root for something very problematic? And then I found the Cinemaholic, which has a whole story from October 18th. Do Veronica and Lucas end up together in La Brea? Theories. The article alleges that both of them have been the black sheep of the group and have bonded with each other very easily. Does this mean that there is potential romance on the horizon for them? I don't think that they bonded easily. I really think that the dominoes that made them come together included the death of Mary Beth, which was a come-to-God moment for Lucas. It gave him the bravery to fight against the exiles to try to save Veronica, which he did. And now Veronica feels indebted to him. But you can feel like you owe somebody and still like them. From the article, While they come from different worlds, both Lucas and Veronica have met with grief and loss in addition to experiencing a complicated childhood. 
Veronica was kidnapped when she was just a child and forced to aid the kidnapping of another child. Lucas shared a difficult relationship with his mother and the death of his father, along with his criminal undertakings, and that created a lot of trouble for him. Due to their past, both of them were considered untrustworthy and were seen with a suspicious eye. While this may have changed over the course of the two seasons, they are still kind of outcasts of the group, and this gives them a lot to connect over. I agree with this assessment, but I would love to add that even if they are more trustworthy to the people of the clearing, sometimes we carry guilt with us that makes us feel untrustworthy, and so they may not be trusting themselves or loving themselves as much as they could. Another observation, Veronica and Lucas barely interacted in the first season, but they were brought together at the beginning of the second season, when Lucas helped her escape captivity from the exiles. And we also have this troubling sentence, even when Veronica does not agree with Lucas's decisions, she goes along with them. While one could write it off as her way to return the favor of saving her life, there is clearly much more emotional investment in her actions. And as it pertains to the show, Lucas wanted to steal the food, Veronica didn't, but she went with him, I think, to try to keep him safe. And it's a good thing she did go because she also talked him out of murdering the guy who killed Mary Beth. So she prevented more death and also prevented Lucas from falling deeper into a hole of guilt based around his mother's passing. Back to the article. Considering all this, it wouldn't be a surprise if their friendship evolves into something more and we get another romantic entanglement in La Brea. Stuck in the past with no way out and mortal dangers lurking around every corner, everyone needs someone that they can rely upon. With the way things are going, Veronica and Lucas may have just found that in each other. Not a single word of age appeared in the article, so I feel like I'm okay. That she's probably around 20, and so is he. But let's finish with the thought, how will Ella affect the relationship dynamic moving forward? And that thought brings us to the end of this episode of the La Brea Purveya. If you've been listening and you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share with your friends. I don't care much about ratings in iTunes or anything like that, but I would love for more people to listen and participate in the show. You can do that by calling 570-PODWAD1 or emailing shout at yallheard.me. Both of those methods are for the parent podcast of this show called Y'all Heard. You can find out more information about that at yallheard.me. But I do handle the communications that come in, so if it's about La Brea, I will be sure to work it into the show. So send your thoughts, your theories, your feelings, because I'd love to hear them. Episodes 5 and 6 will be covered in two weeks with a new episode of the La Brea Purveya. But in order to hold you over, I'm going to try to release a non-episode-specific podcast episode that revisits some of our unanswered questions over the course of season one and two. Things that I think the producers would rather us forget. Mm -hmm.